1: From the Financial Times in London, this is a special edition of the FT Investigations podcast. My name's Tom Burgess. I'm an investigations correspondent based here in London with my esteemed colleague, Polita Clark, the environment correspondent. And on the phone from Bangkok, we have Michael Peel. We've all been on the road reporting a series of stories about land, a precious resource for which there is a surge of demand with billions of dollars at stake. And I think it's fair to say, and I'm sure Michael and Polita will correct me if I'm wrong, that what we all found was that global market forces are smashing up against very local struggles and grievances in Myanmar, in Ethiopia, and in Indonesia. So I'm just going to ask Michael first, and then Polita, to explain a little bit about where you've been and what you've found. Michael, you've been in Myanmar, yes?
2: That's right, Tom. Myanmar is a really interesting place to look at this theme, because... It's a country that's just come out of almost half a century of very repressive military rule. And one of the many legacies of that is that there are these land disputes, the sheer scale and scope of which takes the breath away. It feels like they're everywhere. Almost all places you go, if you talk to people, you'll soon find out about some land dispute that involved typically people's lands being seized in the old days by the military with or without compensation but more recently there are different types of land disputes that have happened so for example it might involve a local government taking land from people again with or without compensation and then passing it on to companies and then compensation is given. There are then arguments about, was the amount fair? Was the deal coerced? And did people have a chance to say no, or at least negotiate better terms? And the variety of these cases and the longevity of some of these disputes and the intractability of them are all striking. And they all show how this is a big issue, not just for the government, it's not just a social question for the people of Myanmar, but it's also a big question for foreign investors coming in. And they've got to be very, very aware that they don't walk right into the middle of one of these land disputes.
1: Michael, I think you've got a clip we can listen to, right? Someone explaining what's going on there.
2: Yes, this is a guy called Alex Tu, who is an activist and analyst who focuses on land. And here he is talking about the problem
3: in Myanmar.
1: The government has this vacant, fair loan, and virgin land law, where it defines which land is vacant, which land is fair loan, and which land is virgin. But if you look at land in the country, I don't think there is any vacant land. So if you are from outside,
3: it and you don't know the real context of the country, you probably see that, oh, this land is vacant. But that's not true. So when the foreigners or investors or business from other countries come into the country and look at at the country from the investment perspective, then they should talk to not just only the government, but to the people to get the right information.
1: Intriguing stuff. Now, Palita's with me in London. You've been in Indonesia and it's a very different picture in a way there, yeah?
4: Yeah, it is. I went to a fairly remote patch of rainforest in uh, East Kalimantan, which is Indonesia's part of the island of Borneo. And I went there with the Norwegian Climate and Environment Minister, Vida Helgeson, and a small-ish group of Norwegians. They were there because Indonesia has managed to turn itself into the world's largest deforester. The rate of deforestation, it's, chopping down trees... Yeah has grown there really quite enormously to the point that in 2012, Indonesia managed to lose the equivalent of more than about 100,000 soccer pitches in a single year, which was nearly twice as much as Brazil, even though Brazil is obviously home to the world's largest rainforest, the Amazon, which is more than four times the size of the uh, amount of tropical forest that Indonesia has.
1: You'd think if everybody realised this is a massive problem, then the international community could do something. Well,
4: Um, six years ago, Norway did something really quite unprecedented. It said, we are prepared to give Indonesia a billion dollars if it stops chopping down its trees. Six years later, unfortunately, progress has been very, very slow. And it is largely because of the difficulty of figuring out appropriate land use policies there. It's widely recognised that for different reasons to the ones in Myanmar that Michael's just outlined, but but the outcomes are actually quite similar. There's an enormous amount of conflict over land. There's overlapping permits have been allowed on the same bits of land. Uh, there's a lot of confusion and chaos. And as well as that, although there have been attempts to introduce various reforms to make it easier, for example, to conserve and protect forests, the law enforcement has been difficult. Corruption remains a, a widespread problem. And the result is that at the end of this time that I spent there with the Norwegians, the minister himself, Mr Helgerson, had something interesting to say about how long it's likely to be before Norway actually does pay out its full one billion dollars. And we can hear a clip from him now.
0: I certainly think that the pay for performance uh, model has uh, potential. And, and more than that, it has realized its potential in Brazil. Indonesian politics is more complicated than uh, even Brazilian politics. And um, Indonesia is a more diverse country than Brazil. It's a continent of islands. And therefore, one shouldn't be surprised that things take longer in Indonesia but we have uh, spent a lot of time on getting the groundwork in place. There's still a way to go in uh, the mechanics of things, but uh, what will really be the big test now going forward is to see actual protection of forests and peatlands.
1: Meanwhile, while Police has been in Indonesia and Michael in Myanmar, I went to Ethiopia, to the lowland areas, a part of Ethiopia called Gambella, which is the centre of an attempt by Ethiopia's pretty authoritarian government to lease vast tracts of land to foreign investors ostensibly to promote exports and to address chronic food insecurity in Ethiopia but Ethiopia's government critics would say this is part of many many decades of the Ethiopian highlanders based in Addis Ababa who dominate the federal government extending their control over the lowlands and places like Gambella the greatest fertile region of Ethiopia. I, too, have not one clip, but two, actually. This first is Jamal Ahmed, who is the chief executive of Saudi Star. Saudi Star is an agribusiness run by um, Alamudi, who is the richest man in East Africa, a multi-billionaire. This is his project to grow rice in Gambela, in an area that's been contested for a long time. And this is Jamal Ahmed, the chief executive of Saudi Star, answering his critics.
3: Gambella is a region in Ethiopia, which was left behind, which is not developed, which is very remote and uh, what Saudi Star has brought is investment, capital investment and technology transfer. Investment in large scale has been portrayed as a very sensitive issues by the Western media and our commercial farm investment also was portrayed as a, a very sensitive investment and had negative impact on the people on the ground. That is very painful for somebody like me, who is also an African. And uh, the people who the some NGOs and activists have crocodile tear for are my own people. They're Ethiopians. And I care and we care, the Germans also care much more than the activists.
1: And on the other side of this picture are people like Omot Oluwuk, who we met in Nairobi, in Kenya. He's one of the many Anwak, one of the main indigenous groups in Gambela, who have been forced into exile through many, many years of conflict, much of it linked to land. And this is his rather harrowing recollection of his homeland.
3: Some would have killed themselves because of what happened in, in Ethiopia. Our brothers and mothers, even I don't even know where my mother is now since... 2003. So when I recall uh, what happened and think about uh, what happened in Ethiopia, my mind this step It is something which is very bad. Our land has been taken, our, our women have been raped, and uh, our fathers has been killed. And they are still hunting. In the village, military are there, raping, killing, all these things. So. Even I don't want to remember about what happened because it will disturb me. Yeah.
1: So I guess we can agree that what the three of us are encountering is a pretty intractable set of problems around the most emotive subject of all for many people, which is the land on which they live and the land they claim as their own. A lot of NGOs that we've all been reading about and talking to talk about an epidemic of land grabbing. Michael, you were one of the first in our team to start to really delve into this many, many months ago now. Is this true? Are we witnessing an epidemic of land grabbing? Or as some of the investors would say, are these just kind of do as trying to get in the way of progress?
2: Well, it depends. What you call a land grab is the ultimate question at, at the heart of this. And in Myanmar and many other places as well, I should imagine there's a real spectrum here from, for example, straight thefts by a military government, to much more nuanced cases where people have received some compensation, which in terms of their incomes might seem quite generous, relatively speaking, but then that land is quickly sold on to investors at many times the price by authorities, and so people understandably say, well, okay, we might have got a few thousand dollars, but actually the land was really worth a lot more than this, and we should be paid more, especially as you know, it's not just the upfront payment, it's the loss so for some of them, of the only asset they've ever had. And a good example of some of the complexities of this is there is an industrial zone called the Thilawa in Myanmar, which is quite advanced. It's Japanese-backed, and the project is going ahead, and companies have signed up to do manufacturing there. But at the heart of it all is the land dispute, which is still in the process of being very slowly resolved. And this dates back to the mid-1990s. The way forward so far has been torturous negotiations. Many local people have agreed to relocation and compensation packages, but then that's thrown up its own problems. The places they've been relocated to, there are houses which have been built in a hurry, but there aren't services there, and so they're unhappy about that. And so the problem just keeps on spawning new problems
1: down the road. Michael, problems spawning more problems. I mean, it sounds like there are dozens of these examples in your story. And there are dozens of other examples in many of the countries that have been targeted for cross-border land investment. I suppose one of the troubling things here is that, you know, we live on a planet that's becoming hotter, that's becoming hungrier, as becoming more crowded. And presumably all those things, Polita, help to drive demand for land or certainly competition for it. Yeah. Are we looking here at a new kind of source of conflict?
4: Yeah, I mean, one really interesting statistic that I um, came across when I was trying to think about, you know, what are the drivers of forest loss? And really the main one is population growth. If you look back over the last couple of centuries, you see this really um, close correlation between rises in population and rises in the amount of forest lost, And actually, the number of people in the world has absolutely exploded just in the space of a single lifetime. In 1950, there were 2.5 billion of us, and now there are more than 7 billion. That was what was playing out fundamentally in Borneo when I was there because basically one of the big factors in forest loss there is the growth of these palm oil plantations. Palm oil is something that most of us unknowingly imbibe or wash our hair or our bodies in every day. But it's found in everything from shampoo to soap to chocolate bath to donuts, and global demand for it. I don't it, want any donuts. Apparently. Global demand for it has grown enormously. The amount of land in Indonesia that's been um, used now to grow palm oil has uh, more than doubled in the last 15 years to about 10 million hectares. So it creates these extraordinary things. And when I was on the ground in this tiny village down in East Kalimantan, I was wandering around and it was supposed to be a model village for green growth, as in economic activity that didn't involve chopping down lots of trees. And as I was wandering around, I saw this recently used yellow bulldozer lurking in some bushes and i said to the village head sorry but you know what what is that it doesn't actually look as though it's got much to do with green growth and it turned out to have been one of three bulldozers that the villagers had taken hostage recently <laughs> because they discovered that they were being used to clear land for a palm oil plantation on a bit of forest that they claimed was theirs. A long history of uh, dispute, and uh, the bottom line was that they had been in negotiations with the company involved, had given back two, but were still demanding a hundred thousand dollars compensation for the trees that had been <laughs> cut down. So, you know, and that sort of conflict is something that just flares up almost on a literally on a daily basis in Indonesia because the demand for land and trees continues to grow in Indonesia companies are fulfilling not just domestic requirements to try to expand economically and poverty rates that have improved quite dramatically in fact over the last 10-15 years but are still quite high and so they're trying to meet that demand as well as growing international demand to try to stem deforestation rates which are not only a problem for tropical forest species but also it's a problem for climate change which is why Norway was involved.
1: Fascinating stuff, Polita and Michael. A final thought from um, someone that we spoke to on the road in Ethiopia who said that a man must live where his umbilical cord is buried.
3: The idea of villagization and resettlement is to bring people to more productive areas to be able to provide them with services like electricity, water, uh, roads, schools, clinics. So it's very important to do this. But the problem with resettlement is Ethiopians have a saying, you know, I have to live where my umbilical cord has been buried. When a child is born, the umbilical cord is cut and it's buried. So this is the kind of identity people develop within Ethiopia.
1: What he meant by that, I understood, was that land investment the world over is going to be more sensitive than almost any other type of investment because of the sheer emotional attachment that people have to the land where they are born and grow. My thanks to Polita Clark and Michael Peel. Our producer was Fiona Simon. You can read the Land series at ft.com forward slash land and you can find more FT podcasts at ft.com forward slash podcasts. Our Land series was produced with support from the Pulitzer Centre on Crisis Reporting.